Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Chris. It's good to be with you. I feel sad for you and for me that we're the people who didn't have plans for Labor Day. Um, and here we are. Uh, we just love Jesus more than all the rest of those people. Uh, before we get into the Bible, I just want to say we're not going to have worship and prayer on Wednesday because we're having an evening with Trevor Hudson on Tuesday night. Uh, he's going to be here. Trevor is a pastor, spiritual director, author. He wrote a book called The Cycle of Grace, which has had a profound impact upon uh, this church and many in our community. And I am very excited to have uh, Trevor all the way from South Africa. He's going to be here doing some other stuff. I think he's lecturing at Fuller on the West Coast, and we were able to get him uh, here. Actually, it's Probably the guest I'm, um, well, that's going to sound weird because then it's like, I like him more than some other person. But I kind of do. I, I think this guy is amazing. And so I really hope on Tuesday night that you'll uh, clear out time. There's a retreat in the middle of the day. I don't know how many spots are available for that day retreat, but the evening is registration free. Just come and hang out with us. You're going to hear some really life changing and transformative teaching. I've heard him uh, talk about the cycle of grace, which is uh, based on the content of a book that he wrote. And it's really, really, really good stuff. So we hope you'll join us on Tuesday. No worship and prayer on, on Wednesday. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 16. This weekend, it's just, if we needed proof that God is a college football fan, the weather, it got cool. It was like, oh, the Lord's into this. Uh, I was thinking that yesterday. I don't know if that's true or not, but I, I choose to believe that it could possibly be true, that when the weather turns, it's uh, God saying, yay, football season. Uh, verses 21 to 28. Get ready. If you're new to Trinity, just the next few months are going to be an adventure because um, I like to talk a little bit of trash in, in front of you all in church uh, occasionally. So um, if you don't like it, you can email me. My email address is brad at atltrinity.org. From that time on, pay attention to that phrase, from that time on, it's a context clue, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block for me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. And then Jesus told his disciples, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Let's try to hear Jesus. Father, we thank you for the Bible. Lord, I, I'm just so, the more I live and the more I fail, the more thankful I am for these moments, Jesus, that you had with your friends where they just struggled to keep up. And God, in one way or another, we all struggle to keep up. We all struggle to understand. We all struggle to make sense of life in light of what you've said. 
And so, Lord, I pray today that you would help us to enter into the reality of this moment, Jesus, that you had with your friends and with Peter specifically, Lord. Help us to to learn from you, Jesus. Help us to hang in there when we're confused. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, um, my mom uh, was an English teacher for, for a hot minute back in the day before I was born, but our family has always been um, a kind of, you know, my mom encouraged us to read. And so, if you have kids, you should probably do that with your kids as well. And one of the things that she taught us was to pay attention to context clues. And this passage begins uh, with from that time on. And if we don't pay attention to what that time was, then we won't maybe understand why it's there and why Jesus was saying what he was saying in this moment to his disciples. So I'm going to back up. Last week we read uh, the passage right before this one. And it was that passage where Jesus takes his friends to a little out-of-the-way place uh, called Caesarea Philippi. And in this out-of-the-way place, about 20-some-odd miles from where they spent most of their time, he asked them two very important questions. He says, who do people say that I am? And they answered like a prophet. They didn't say a sleazy politician or a, a, a military hero. They said, you're more like an Old Testament prophet. And that's really important because it gives us a look at how Jesus was perceived by his contemporaries as, as, a, as a truth teller, as a prophetic voice. Jesus is more like... Um, you know, Jeremiah and Elijah, even John the Baptist, than he was like Roman contemporaries, uh, other teachers. And then he says to them, so that's what people say. Who do you say that I am? And Peter hits the nail on the head. Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the Savior. You're the, you're the one who is to come and redeem Israel. And Jesus looks at Peter and he's like, that's it. That's true. So from that time on, as soon as Jesus is truly, there's like a moment of knowing where the disciples, and specifically Peter, they get it right. They're like, you are the one who has come to save and rescue and redeem. You are the one. From that time on, Jesus started to speak to them about suffering, betrayal, death, and resurrection. So why? I think... When the disciples connected those dots, they thought Jesus is a very big deal and we are connected to him and he's a very big deal. We're going to win. It's a bunch of guys that were not impressive by the world standards, fishermen and um, sort of lower to middle of the road people. And all of a sudden they're like, Jesus, you are the savior and we are your friends. This is going to be awesome. And the first thing that Jesus begins to say to them, sensing probably that they are missing the mark, that their expectations are getting off track, is he tells them suffering is a way and a part of life. He begins to speak to them about the road that he is going to walk down. And they all know that they are going to walk down the same roads, that following Jesus means you go where he goes. And the disciples probably had begun to wonder, maybe this isn't going to be so bad. 
Like maybe God's going to do amazing things and he's going to use Jesus and he's going to use us. And there's some real truth to that. I mean, the disciples participated in the massively beautiful redemptive work of God. And yet there might have been a moment where they thought maybe we're going to get out of this without all that suffering. And Jesus says to them, I'm going down a road that's going to lead me to suffering. And if you follow me, you will also experience suffering. And y'all, this just gets me to thinking when we try to imagine a life that does not involve big suffering and little suffering, we're imagining a life that's not real. Jesus, as he lived his life, encountered different kinds of suffering. There was the big huge suffering of betrayal and rejection and the cross and people fleeing from him and the unjust murder of the son of God. And then there were the smaller sufferings where Jesus said no to his own will and yes to his father's will, where he chose God's way versus his way. And in this moment with his friends, he's essentially looking at them and saying, you're going to follow me if you follow me, you're going to experience pain. There is no life this side of eternity that is free from pain. It's just not there. It's not, it's a non, pain is a non-negotiable. I remember hearing uh, David Brooks, a New York Times columnist, say that suffering carves out deep spaces inside of us. And if you've ever hurt, and every one of us have, you know that suffering is not something we would ever choose in the moment. And yet, if we follow Jesus in the herd, he will sometimes make us deeper people. One of the things that suffering has done in my own life is it has contained within it an invitation to pay attention to reality and ask God to make me more present to what is real in my life, even if what is real is horrific, is very painful, and to ask him, God, where could you and how might you make me aware of your presence in the middle of this pain? All of us experience pain. I look out and I see people who've lost loved ones in this room, marriages that have ended heartache around kids, job, health. We all experience pain. Pain is a part of life. It's what we do with it. It's how we engage it. And Jesus looks at his friends and he says, I will suffer, you will suffer. And some of that suffering is stuff that's just way outside your control. But there's another aspect to suffering where we choose God's will versus our will. And in my own life, this is where I have tripped up the most, where I have a vision or an idea of the way something ought to go, and then all of a sudden, life isn't going that way, and I have a choice to make. Am I going to choose God's way, or am I going to double down on my own way? I think that's exactly what was going on with Peter. Peter was imagining, okay, so you're the Messiah, so that means like you're going to do really impressive and amazing things. And that means I'm your friend. And so I'm going to be with you. And then as soon as Jesus starts to talk about suffering, what does Peter do? The second thing we see in this text is he pulls him aside and he rebukes him using the same language that Jesus used when he rebuked devils. I just want you to imagine this moment. Jesus is with his friends in an intimate space. 
And in front of them, Peter kind of pulls him off to the side and he's like, this is not the way this is going to go. And he rebukes him like a devil. And I think there are three things at play in Peter's life. And the reason why I think this is because, well, number one, I think it's kind of a plain reading of the the text in context. But I also feel this because I know that the moments where I'm like, God, this can't be, are moments usually where I'm confused, where my expectations aren't being met, and where I'm just flat out scared. Peter's freaking out because he thought it was going this way and it started going this way. And so he stands up and rebukes Jesus. He acts like a scared human. You know, we love to pick people, you know, it's mainly like Sunday school people that like to pick on Peter, you know. I, um, I remember a song that my little brother used to listen to. It's like the most annoying Christian kids, Gospel Duck it was called. <laughs> And they had a song, don't be a chick, chick, chicken like Peter, because he got out of the boat and fell in the water. I was like, well, where were the other 11? Like, so I think Peter gets kind of a bad rap because he was always like, you know, Peter was like a fire ready aim type of person. I think he's the patron saint of all of you who get in trouble sometimes because you run your mouths and I don't know anything about that. So I don't know what that's like, but in my own life, when I'm confused, And for Peter, let's just sit with it. Like he thought one thing was going to happen and then another thing happens. And so there's like cognitive dissonance at play in Peter. And connected to his confusion, his expectations aren't being met. When our kids were little, we had had a rule in our house that like expectations had to be reasonable, stated, and agreed upon. And two out of three was not going to work. Peter is not batting three for three. He had an expectation that might have been reasonable, but it wasn't agreed upon. Jesus did not agree with it, but he thought it was going to go, life was going to go one way. And he thought, this is convenient for me because now I get what I want and I get to be with Jesus. And then all of a sudden, Jesus begins to bump up against Peter's will, his his chooser, the way he thought things were going to go. And he's like, well, will you follow me if it goes this way instead of that way? Peter's confused. His expectations aren't being met. But I think the most powerful thing at play in Peter is that he was scared. And it's interesting because some some of us, I'm this way, when I'm afraid, I become more clear, more aggressive, more assertive, um, not less. Some people get smaller when they're afraid and some people get bigger. Peter got bigger when he was afraid. He, he was in a place of fear. And so rather than like shrink away, he grabs Jesus and he's like, I'm going to give you a little bit of a talking to right here. So whatever it is that you do when you're afraid, it's important to recognize that when we're afraid, oftentimes it's because we're not sure whether God's will and our own will are matching up really well. And I'm going to tell you, live long enough and your will and God's will are not going to match. Like do this thing long enough, this faith thing. There are going to come these moments in life where you're going to think, oh, I don't think I'm going to get what I hope for. And that's what was happening to Peter. I often resist God when I resist God. And I do. And you do too. 
it's oftentimes like Peter when we are confused, when our expectations aren't being met, and when we're afraid. So Peter resists Jesus in a very obvious and clear way. And then the next thing we see is that Jesus invites Peter and us to trust him even when we're confused and afraid. He actually uses language about the cross before the cross. So, and it's really important to hear this. Like Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me before the cross became a religious icon, a religious symbol. This is before Jesus dies on the cross. He basically says, pick up your Roman instrument of execution and follow me. He was saying like, I want you to learn how to say no to your own agenda so that you can follow me even when I lead you down roads that maybe you wouldn't have chosen yourself. Jesus is asking us to say yes to him. And I just want to tell you that inevitably will mean saying no to yourself in really meaningful ways. When Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. What he was doing was he was teaching us how to say no to this so that we could say yes to God. And I'm not asking you to become a kind of masochist that goes looking for pain. Pain's going to find you. It, pain's a non-negotiable. Suffering is a non-negotiable, this, this side of heaven in a fallen, broken world. Um, but what I do think while pain will find you, whether that's sickness or problems, the part that we have to choose and what Jesus is trying to get Peter to choose in this moment is when push comes to shove, God wants us to say yes to him, even if it means saying no to our own selves, our own agenda, our own desire, our own vision of what we thought things should be. We have to practice saying yes to God and no to self. And I believe that there was an invitation here from Jesus with Peter to say, say, practice your yes to me and no to you now so that when the stakes are really high, you'll be able to say yes to me and no to you. Any faith, any Christian conviction that does not make room for submission and obedience which is a yes to God and almost inevitably a no to our own agenda is an anemic faith. And I believe that in large part, we're in danger of losing sight of that in the modern Western convenient world. We sometimes dupe ourselves into believing that faith is just like a bolt on to a good life to make it a great life. And y'all, there are beautifully therapeutic aspects to Christian faith. It, it, faith in, in the comfort given to us by trusting in Jesus is beautiful. Like that's all real. And yet there come these times where what I want and what God wants don't always match up. And Jesus is saying like, I want to win that, that wrestling match every time. So I believe there's an invitation for us in our moments of confusion, to step back and say, God, is my will colliding with your will? Is my want in danger of winning out over saying yes to what you want, what you have for me? And one of the things I think I'm experiencing and have experienced in my own life is that most of the time we don't really know much of what's going on. Like most of the time we're just 
living in some form of confusion around expectations and fear. And, and yet Jesus still says to us in those places, would you just practice saying yes to me? Practice submitting to me. Practice obedience to me. He's asking something of us. He's wanting to put obligation on you. He's wanting you to work with him in a way that shifts and alters your whole life. Because, finally, our life matters. This is what he says at the end. He says, for the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what's been done. So do you see the flow in this? Jesus is saying, the way you live, the outcome of your life and mine, it matters to God. It's not just what you say or what you say you believe or what you think about things. It's like your life matters. He'll repay to everyone for what's been done. Jesus wants you to be a certain kind of person. And that certain kind of person is forged in the fires of divorce and death and disappointment, of confusion and not running that way toward your own agenda, but sitting still enough to say, God, how would you find me in this confusion? That's where we're made into the kinds of people that we're ultimately wanting to be. And God's desire for us is that we would be the kinds of people whose instinct is increasingly to say yes to him, to submit to him, to hang in there with him as we navigate the complexities and the exhaustion and the disappointments that life will inevitably throw at us. Jesus is treating Peter and his friends like grown-ups here. He's pressing on them, and I believe he's pressing on you and me. He's asking us questions around where we're headed. So here's the question I want us to hold for a few moments. Like Peter, where are you currently experiencing some turbulence around confusion, unmet expectations, and fear? Jesus went right after that with Peter. Where, where are you experiencing that same kind of turbulence around those three areas? Maybe it's a blend of those three areas. And can we name that when we get stuck in those places, it affects our relationship with God and also with other people? We do and say some of our worst stuff in places of fear, confusion, and unmet expectations. And so I think the Lord wants us to stop and think about it for a moment. And I, I imagine myself sometimes in, in these places of reflection, um, with God and God is looking at me and saying, Chris, I know where you're experiencing this, but I would like to know that you know where you're experiencing this. Unacknowledged turbulence and distraction and us choosing our agenda doesn't make it any less dangerous. Jesus knows you. He knows me. He knows our struggle. He knows our sin. He also, though, wants to know that you know where you're stuck or where you're at risk of opposing God so that we can name it, confess it, 
and choose obedience. Choose to hang in there. So I want us to hold this for a few moments and quiet, and then we're going to come up again, and I'll lead you toward the communion table. But first, let's be still. Let's, let's confess. Let's meditate. Let's reflect for a few moments on where are we tempted like Peter. And then we'll bring that to the Lord. Let's be still for a couple of moments together.